Welcome, and thank you for standing by. Today's call is being recorded. If you have any objections, you may disconnect at this time. All participants are in a listen-only mode until the question and answer portion of today's conference. At that time, you may press star 1 on your phone to ask a question. I would now like to turn the conference over to your host, Marissa Korma, Program Manager of the Middle East Program at the Wilson Center. Thank you. You may begin. Thank you, Operator. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Wilson Center's Ground Truth Briefing organized by the Middle East Program. Today's briefing is a book talk with the editors and authors of Women Rising in and beyond the Arab Spring, a timely and very compelling compilation of essays by women scholars, activists, artists, filmmakers, and beyond from across the Arab world, as well as communities in the U.S., Canada, Australia, Europe, and Japan, all sharing their unique experiences, their stories, perspectives, and analyses of different aspects of women activism in its different and creative forms. This book also chronicles these women's journeys across history and not only starting with the Arab Spring, thereby shattering the stereotypes often found in Western media as well as pop culture, especially about Arab women lacking agency and drive. As a woman from Jordan, myself, who's been influenced by the work of feminist scholars such as Rula Kawas, who is one of the authors in this compilation, and Egypt feminist leader Nawal Saadawi, amongst many others, I'm especially honored to be moderating today's book discussion with both co-editors, Rita Steven and Munira Sharad, as well as the Wilson Center's Middle East Program Global Fellow, Margot Badron. So thank you, Rita, Munira, and Margot, for your time today. A little bit about our esteemed panelists before we kick off today's discussion. Rita Steven, in addition to being a co-editor of this book, is a research fellow at the Moise Khairallah Center for Lebanese Diaspora Studies at North Carolina State University and the director of the Middle East Partnership Initiative at the U.S. Department of State. Munira Sharad, who is also a co-editor of the book, is Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Texas, Austin, and a non-resident fellow at the Baker Institute at Rice University. And Margot Badran, in addition to being um, one of my esteemed colleagues, a global fellow at the Wilson Center, is also Senior Fellow at the Prince Al-Walid Bin Talal Center for Muslim Christian Understanding at Georgetown University. We will start today's discussion with a few questions. I will pose our panelists, and then we will take questions from our listeners. If you have a question at any time, please press star one to get in the queue during the call. So Rita, I'm gonna start uh, with you as one of the co-editors of the, of the book. Tell us more about the idea behind the book. How did this journey begin bringing all these powerful and diverse women's voices together from the Arab world? And what were the main lessons learned from this um, book project? Thank you, Marissa, and thank you, Wilson Center, and um, all our listeners and, and callers. Um, this book uh, has really started with uh, the rise of the Arab Spring and um, the responses and the reaction that reactions that we uh, sense 
here in the United States and among our colleagues, whether scholars or politicians, um, the earthquake was seen as an awakening that has never happened before. And all of us knew that that was not true. Additionally, we started seeing women's um, issues or gender issues being discussed as um, treating women as kind of a um, side uh, side project or, or non-essential to uh, what's happened uh, in the Arab Spring. Well, from our research and our scholarship and our um, personal experiences, we knew that this was not true. We knew that... Um, the mothers that raised us, the aunts and, 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 and relatives, the, the scholars, the feminists, uh, everyone that we studied was not, um, um, you know, what, what we have been described. So we uh, decided to bring women's voices, the women we know, uh, to bring women's voices to the forefront. And we also decided to bring uh, voices that are often not heard while the um, world global media was focusing on Tahrir Square, there was a lot happening in rural uh, Egypt, uh, in, in Libya, in, in other places. So we thought um, to bring that together and show the diversity, yet the agency and proactive uh, role that women played, not just in the events of the Arab Spring, but have been playing since the 1920s. Uh, in the region and continue to play even after um, all the excitement about the Arab Spring has wind down, if, if, if such. Did you want me to talk more, Marissa, about this? Yes, please go ahead. Yes, okay. please go ahead. Okay. Yeah, okay. I yeah, if, if, if you can, if you can, yeah, if you can um, actually uh, could talk a little yeah. bit more about the main lessons learned from the from the book project. Sure. sure. And so what we did, we decided to put out the call for paper, and we got several uh, responses from uh, voices you don't n normally hear, and a lot of it was uh, young voices, uh, marginal voices, queer voices and uh, housewives, you name it. And, and um, then we started thinking, what, what does this mean um, the, for, for us to put this book together? And we realized that these were very strong voices that we are presenting. And um, we saw in them by compiling them, and this is where the introduction kicks in, that they really expressed resistance they expect, expressed a uh, desire for reform, and they really re uh, led the revolution. And with that, they were uh, resistant to uh, being labeled in, in different manners, whether they are victims, labeled as victims, or labeled as having lesser um, uh, feminist consciousness than someone else, or, uh, and then, uh, or, or uh, a community that is only... Uh, dealing with patriarchal oppression or Islamic oppression. And so we saw that uh, the various voices, some women used um, uh, their Islamic ethos to, to discuss how that mobilized their, um, uh, their activism. Some women uh, discussed 
secularism. So we went back and forth in, in, in terms of the themes. A few things I want to mention here is that um, the, the idea of women rising is, is the idea that women continue to rise, right? They were rising in the past. They continue to rise. Today we see women leading the uh, protests in Lebanon. Uh, last year it was in Sudan and in Iraq and in uh, Algeria. And whether in protests or in participating in uh conventional politics, women have shown to the world that they're finally claiming the space that they've always had. Now they had an opening. And we see that since the um, the Arab Spring, most of the reforms that have been witnessed in the, in the region have been reforms regarding the advancement of women's legal rights. In Saudi Arabia, women are now allowed to travel without male consent. Um, they are uh, allowed to drive. Jordan removed legal penal code, Article 308. Lebanon abolished penal code 522. Tunisia passed laws on eliminating, eliminating violence against women. Iraq passed legislation on sexual harassment and employment. Algeria and, and Egypt passed laws that punish violence against women and sexual harassment. And of course, in 2014, Tunisia passed the first constitution to use the language of equality that Munira is going to talk about. So all of these accomplishments were not possible before, and, and the Arab Spring did create an opening for women to push for further uh, rights and for further um, legal reforms. And these are totally the, the women's, the results of the women's own activism. So the book, generally speaking, I want to give an overview is divided in five uh, sections. Each section has eight chapters. They're short, so don't get uh, scared. Um, the first section talks about what do they fight for. And the, uh, we wanted to show the breadth of the issues they fight for. As you know, Rula Qawas, the late Rula Qawas, talks about cultural transformation. This is something that's needed across all cultures in order to accept women as equals. Um, also, women continue to suffer under uh, uh, work uh, uh, environments that are hostile to them. Women um, suffer from sexual violence. Uh, also, women's uh, political participation is still frowned upon across the, the globe. And this is a struggle that women also in the Middle East do uh, talk about. And then we hear the voice of queers also in the discussion of nationalism as if the uh, Middle East is closed-minded to sexual diversity and one can either be one or the other. Um, and here we have our contributors saying, no, we are entitled to be both queer and Palestinian, for instance. The, other se the second section was, what do they believe in? And this is where we got really into their belief system um, and, and uh, what really uh, pains them. And we have Nadia Lali talking about the colonial legacies. Yes, ISIS is, uh, in, uh, is subjugating Iraqis to many uh, hostilities, but so did the British colonial legacy. So did the Saddam Hussein uh, regime. So they, she looks at it in trajectory of, um, of, of events. We also look at this, this dichotomy between Islamist and feminist ethos and how, did, how does that 
um, uh, really get uh, operationalized in how uh, activists on the ground in Egypt were able to uh, carry out their activism. Um, a question that is posed is intellectual integrity. Where are the intellectuals today of the Middle East with, um, you know, with the Arab Spring? Some of them took the sides of the old regimes, and many of them were quiet. And, and this is a call for, you know, uh, to question the intellectual integrity. The third theme that rises is how they express their agency. And here we wanted to show, yes, in addition to protest um, and in addition to Twitter, things have been, um, Arab women have not always had the main fora for them to express their agency. So they've always capitalized on other for us, for including cyberspace, where women, Arab women's activism started in the 90s, way before the World Trade Organization um, uh, protests. Uh, auditory sensations, how many people pay attention to that in protests? Film, literature, uh, photographs, uh, these are all expressions of uh, agency. And then uh, fourth is how they utilize space. As I mentioned, space is something that women have to maneuver very carefully. And some spaces are dangerous for women, like downtown Baghdad. And we see how women um, take over Baghdad in, in, in the, uh, in, on the day, Women's Day uh, and, and uh, celebrate Women's Day one of these years. And then um, the other spaces they talk about is public spaces and public squares. And uh, this is what Margot is going to talk about, how Tahrir Square transforms over the years. Um, and, um, uh, and later on, we see geotagging as now an, a, a way to protect women through space from sexual harassment. And then we have uh, one of our contributors talks about prisons in uh, Libya. As, as a p place for protest. And then, uh, you know, of course, driving through space in Saudi Arabia is a subject that we discuss. And the final theme in the book is how they organize, whether they are uh, organizing through study centers, women's study centers in Morocco, uh, intellectual activism, or even the diaspora uh, in the United States contributing to the activism um, and then, you know, how they even uh, uh, organize in rural settings where the revolution almost forgot uh, to include and all uh, accounts of the revolution forgot to include. So this is a book by women, by women's voices, um, to highlight that women have been rising, continue to rise, and uh, they have to be taken uh, into consideration whenever we make policies about women's rights, protecting women, empowering women. We really got to hear their voices and see what yeah. they're asking for, what they're doing. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rita. Um, um, I can't wait to get into uh, the discussion, uh, but this is fascinating, and I've had the opportunity to read um, um, the majority of, of the chapters, and it was just fascinating to hear from, like you said, such a diverse, spectrum of women um, and to see about to, to see how creative they are in um, in basically exercising agency in order to change uh, the reality on the ground and address the challenges that they have. Um, Munira, I'd like to turn to you as uh, Rita's co-editor um, 
uh, both of you in your introduction, you've outlined three main theoretical contributions from um, those 40 essays in the book. So can you share some of these concepts? Um, tell us a little bit more um, about how you pulled all of these together. Okay, well, thank you. Thank you very much for uh, inviting us. Thank you to the Wilson Center and the organizers. And thank you for our listeners for being here today. I am delighted to be with you. I will be speaking from the perspective of my discipline, which is sociology. And I will be making three points. The first point has to do with agency. I think that the most important development about women during the Arab Spring across the board is about women's agency. It is about women engaging in protests that gave them a sense of empowerment. It is also about women doing all kinds of other things to get their voices heard. I want to read a quote and tell you a story to illustrate what I mean about agency literally exploding to the forefront of the MENA countries. Dina Wahba, in her essay on Egypt in our book, wrote the following. She says, during the 18 days of our revolution, I not only felt safe, I felt empowered. My revolution did not fail. I might be deeply disillusioned, but I don't regret it. This is the most significant experience in my life. Those are very strong words. When I was in Tunisia, I met a woman who works as a cook in private homes, and she told me with pride and very strong emotion, she said, it is us women who made the revolution. For several days, I made couscous, the national dish of Tunisia. She didn't say that. I'm, that's my parenthesis. She said, I made couscous, and I brought two big bags to feed the protesters. That was my role, and it was great. So I think that these women express the sense of agency, of empowerment, the meaning that they experience in their everyday lives during the protest of the Arab Spring. Now, the Arab Spring was what we sociologists like to call a critical historical moment. It was really a moment that had antecedents, had things happened before, and has had implications since the protests stopped. And uh, I think that when we consider agency, we must remember that as our next speaker, my friend and colleague, Margot Badran, has shown in her work, the MENA region had witnessed women's and feminist voices in the past. With the Arab Spring, however, I, we see what I like to call an explosion of agency 
on a broad scale and cutting across social classes. My second point is that with the agency of women around the Arab Spring, we see a change in the MENA region, historically speaking. We see a change from politics from above to politics from below. That is, most of our countries come from a history of some states expanding women's rights, usually for reasons of political interest. The major examples are Tunisia. We saw some of that in Egypt at times, in Turkey, in Iraq, and in, in Iran. The most striking example is the case of Tunisia, with its liberal family law starting in the mid-1950s. Just about everyone and every feminist in the MENA region knows about the Code of Personal Status, a legislation that expanded women's rights in the family in regard to marriage, divorce, custody, and a little bit inheritance that was promulgated in the 1950s and continued to be amended and expanded in the 50s 70s, 80s, and 90s. But the change with where we are now is a transformation from what some have called state feminism, what um, I just referred to as politics from above, to the role of feminist activists. Women in associations of civil society and in political parties are now demanding greater rights and a greater voice. Again, to take the example of Tunisia, the constitution of 2014 is a good example of how active feminists were in demanding a lingua a language, a vocabulary of equity, and the Tunisian constitution of 2014 does include and enshrine the concept of gender equity. Now, remember, constitutions do not shape everything. We know that. We know that throughout the world, but it is nevertheless very important to have a language of gender equity because that language, that philosophy, that way of putting things does provide a basis for women who want to continue with the struggle now. So constitutions matter a great deal because they offer a platform that people can use when they want to go on with what's in it. It doesn't guarantee anything, but it offers possibilities. In the politics from below, women nowadays organize in a variety of ways, as we show in the book. They put political pressure on politicians. They get, uh, try to get elected to parliament. They constitute research centers. 
they form associations. The number of, of women's associations in Tunisia literally skyrocketed after the Arab Spring, and it went from three to over 300. So we do have a, uh, a lot of activity going on in civil society. My third point is that I want to offer a distinction for those of us in the social sciences and in the policy world who are uh, thinking about those issues. I think in a distinction that um, strikes me as increasingly important is the distinction between women's rights and women's voices. And I think that one does not necessarily lead to the other. We, women can voice their concerns, and there can be very little change in policy, because policy requires state intervention of some sort. They require some form of action on the part of power holders. Voicing a concern is not sufficient for the policy to change automatically. The world doesn't function like that. So when we are studying issues of gender and gender policies, we might want to pay attention to women's voices, but we also want to see what leads to an expansion of women's rights. We had historically in the region an expansion of women's rights with only some feminist voices, and we've had feminist voices without expansion in women's rights. So uh, the distinction is one to uh, keep, in keep in mind. And my conclusion is that my overall sense is that even though democratization did not succeed in many countries that <clears throat> experienced the Arab Spring, women's voices have not been silenced in most countries, and they're likely to be heard. How much they contribute to greater rights for women is what we now need to study with great attention. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, uh, Munira, um, for your presentation. I think um, um, when after we hear from Margot, I'd like to sort of go back to the issue of this distinction that you talked about, um, about women's rights uh, and women's voices, um, because that's a very important point um, moving forward. Um, Margot, um, let's turn to you. You are an author. In, in this book, um, you have a chapter on Egypt, which is a very powerful account of your own experience during the 2011 protests in particular. And what I like about this, um, as well as many of the other pieces in the book, is the historical aspect of women's roles in social revolution. Can you tell us a little bit more about this historical as well as the archive, archival aspect um, of the book? organizing and encouraging this event. Uh, and thank you to uh, Rita and Munira for uh, <clears throat> putting together this amazing 
book, and I'm very moved and um, excited to be a part of it, um, uh, this collection of uh, 40 uh, pieces. Margo, can you speak up because we have a hard time hearing. Oh, Oh, dear. Is, is this phone shifts in. Um, I'm a historian, and as a historian, um, I'm well aware of the importance of women creating our own archive, or I should say archives, um, of uprisings and revolutions um, in the moment and in the still close uh, uh, time to the moment, if possible, uh, to record... Um, uh, our narrative, the narratives of our participation, our reflections, our analyses, and uh, to uh, begin to create historiographies. And this question of archiving and uh, creating uh, historical narratives, of course, is an ongoing process. And it's very important uh, to start as soon as possible within uh, the time of events uh, this uh, to uh, undertake this uh, process. Um, it is also critical, as the pieces um, in this collection uh, by and about women in the Arab Spring do, is to provide, <coughs> excuse me, uh, a context and detailed uh, intersectional um, uh, 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 intersectional demands. Uh, detailed accounts of intersectional demands uh, for bread, uh, dignity, social justice, um, made across lines of gender, class, religion, and ethnicity. Um, they give us a very uh, complex uh, mapping of uh, the terrain, a very fine-grained sense of detail. And this is what uh, the pieces in the book uh, do for us. Uh, they, uh, there are also pieces um, in uh, the collection, as uh, Rita and uh, Munira have already indicated, uh, that give us a sense of the before or the history of women uh, uh, in uprisings and revolutions in uh, the region. Uh, they give us a sense of the long silsila or the long chains of revolutionary um, activity that uh, connect uh, women and the intersections of their demands uh, for political, economic, social, cultural uh, rights. Um, women in, uh, for example, uh, in Egypt, uh, women participated, it's very well known, in the 1919 revolution uh, demanding uh, independence uh, from British uh, rule. And um, they also, uh, uh, women in the uh, uh, Arab countries of the East Mediterranean who were under, that were under mandate in the 20s, 30s, and 40s also uh, organized um, demonstrations and uprisings against uh, mandatory rule. Um, men, women and men um, have uh, had an awareness of the... Um, Oh, sorry, I, I got off track here. Um, what I'm tr really trying to say is that uh, that there has been a, a, a long uh, history 
of uh, uprising and uh, by women and in conjunction with men to demand uh, freedoms uh, from colonial rule and then in the post-colonial period to create um, modern nation states and democracies. Uh, what uh, I would like to bring up very briefly is that um, as a result of women's participation in revolution, for example, uh, in the 1919 revolution in Egypt, um, after the um, semi-independence was declared, women who had gone out into the streets for the first time in collective uprisings and demonstrations and organizing strikes and boycotts and so on went on immediately to organize uh, an independent uh, feminist uh, uh, organization called the Egyptian Feminist Union, uh, which was separate from their participation in the uh, general WAFT party. And they did this uh, in order to continue to demand their own rights along with the rights of uh, the nation. And they organized their feminism in very explicit ways. They used the terminology feminism and feminist and they uh, conducted their activism and had many gains and many things to yet be gained uh, during the 20s, 30s, and 40s. Um, and uh, the independent um, uh, feminist movement was really shut down after the 1952 revolution when, uh, for the first time in modern period, uh, military rule took over um, and uh, that was the end of their independent voices. Now, women in the uh, 20, I'm talking now about Egypt, um, where I was participating in the revolution from the beginning to the end, and where I divide my time. I live between Cairo and the US. I'm also an Egyptian citizen, so I fight from within as well as uh, along with everyone else who's a citizen. Um, the, uh, in my experience in uh, demonstrations and moving around uh, during uh, the period of the, uh, the uh, most vibrant period of the um, uprisings, I uh, observed what I called embedded feminism uh, in, uh, in the uh, context of all these uh, activities, demonstrations, marches, demands, whatever. And it was that women were uh, aware of themselves as women, and of course they were taking hits in their bodies as women, particularly, but they were aware of their rights, of their um, uh, wanting to improve uh, their conditions. And in some of the marches, it was a very good place for me to meet women that I wouldn't ordinarily come into contact with, that is women of various classes. And in the uh, December 20, uh, 2012 march, that big, very famous um, women's march, um, when I was moving along, I was talking with women from uh, various classes, from much more modest backgrounds and different parts of uh, Cairo, because we kept moving forward in these waves, and then we'd meet each other, talk, and then meet other people, and so on. And I could see the collective energy, the very diverse kinds of people and their, uh, but united in similar kinds of demands. And you could feel how they were getting very energizing, energized and feeling very empowered and, and a sense of 
belonging in a sense that it was their country and they were in it. Uh, they threw themselves into the whole process uh, very uh, vigorously, of course. And uh, so I, in these conversations, observations, I could see what I I would understand our feminist aspirations, but not um, uh, not articulated um, as such. And uh, the other thing about so, and it was feminism across much broader a class spectrum, as I said, but also it was a feminism across gender divides, and this was mainly expressed among the uh, younger generations. Uh, and many of us would meet um, in various venues to talk about the next set of things we were up to. And I was moving around mainly with young people, and the, they were both men and women, and they were both in this quote-unquote sort of feminist aspect of the revolution, but it was all intersecting uh, aspects of the revolution uh, together. But there was definitely a clear sense of... Uh, the possibilities of how women could um, uh, move about and, and just in their daily lives, apart from demanding um, rights from the state or society, and how men were also involved in the same process of supporting them in this in this way, uh, and uh, because also as when they could clearly see when women were more restricted, they themselves were more restricted, especially in their interactions. So the, um, so out of this, uh, the 2011 uh, up revolution did come an explosion of different aspects of uh, feminist awareness and activity, but not in a highly collected, collective uh, sense. Is very hard to operate collectively. So the the, the cultural gender um, revolution is continuing in a very everyday uh, uh, sort of uh, manner. And also, it's very interesting that the connections that we made across class lines and across the well, it, often where you live is connected to some extent to class. And these links, we didn't have those links. We didn't have the possibility of connecting with each other and across classes, well, uh, gender, uh, sorry, age, um, that we've kept alive a lot of these uh, uh, alliances and links and contexts. And uh, so I'm in touch with quite a few people, and one sees how they are carrying forth their lives in very um, everyday uh, contexts, uh, pushing forward uh, with the ultimate goals of more, of course, of, uh, social justice, equality, uh, dignity, and so on. And uh, so this is um, what I see and feel up close. And uh, uh, and I myself, I mean, have tried to record as much as I can of what's happening in my own memoirs. And the book was so exciting to me because it brought together the fine, fine detail of other uh, of so many women across so many countries in the region in very different kinds of contexts that are continuing uh, in some in many countries in very very difficult uh, endangered uh, situations so I am um, very very um, excited and happy and proud to be part of this uh, and humbled to be part of this uh, book and uh, I think I can let it go there.
Thank you. Thank you so much, Margot. And I think one of the most important points that um, I've heard you um, highlight um, in your chapter, but I've also read um, in the book, is the the continuity aspect of this social revolution. That it, that that you know, if if a political revolution has ended, um, the the um, feminist revolution and the work of many of these women um, in their different domains continues. And that is very encouraging. Um, I want to go back and ask, um, before I ask my questions, actually, I just want to quickly remind our listeners um, who have their own questions to press star one to get into the queue. I have one question and then and then we'll turn it to uh, to our listeners for their own questions. But um, it's sort of like a two to three part type question trying to bring everything together. I think two of the things that struck me, um, and you all uh, talked about it, but particularly um, Munira mentioned, is um, this shift from um, politics from above to politics from below, and the role women have played in really bringing about changes in legislation um, through different means of lobbying and grassroots activity, the media, film, etc. Um, and and then there was a, a very important point made um, by Munira about this distinction, right, between women's rights and women's voices, and it got me thinking. Yes, of course. I mean, lobbying for a certain change in legislation that is discriminatory to women requires state intervention because the legislature, parliament, etc. You know, they they have to make these changes. Um, but what we've what we've seen, and I think. This is also this outlines the challenge moving ahead. In, in Saudi Arabia, for example, women activists have been very courageous um, throughout the years in protesting the ban on driving, and then the ban was lifted by the state. But then many of these activists were imprisoned, and we we see, you know, similar measures taken in other societies across the region where um, this activism. Um, or perhaps the change or the necessary reforms made, the credit, if anything, goes to the state, right? So, so how do we, how, how, how do you see women that you've interacted with and have worked with um, across the board navigating these very, you know, delicate balances um, from, you know, protest, but also working with the state at the same time in order to make these changes. Um, I will ask Rita to answer, and then we can move on to um, Munira and Egypt. And Margot, sorry. Rita? Yes, thank you, Marissa. The example you used in um, Saudi Arabia is a great example. You see here how women's rights and women's voices uh, did not mean the same thing for for the authority. Uh, when the, although influenced by women's voices and women's actions to drive illegally and get arrested, the price that women paid for expressing their voices was very dear. However, the Saudi government turned around and did grant them that right, uh, kind of like bestowing this right upon you from the patriarchal authority, but you cannot express your voice. And this is, this is something that um, it's a dilemma 
that we have oftentimes kind of like an authority over women's rights from a more rational and 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 uh, uh, more um, responsible uh, individual or agent over women, but women's voices, women's agencies are really still hard to accept. This doesn't mean that women are not expressing them, but they are paying dearly. As you know, when Rula Kawas uh, encouraged yes. uh, the students uh, in the, on campus to, to talk about uh, domestic uh, uh, sexual harassment, she paid dearly. Yes. So, yes, this is, this is not a happy story as, as such, but the women are expressing these voices, and Munira can talk more about it. Thanks, Rita. Munira? Munira, are you still with us? Can you hear me? Can you hear yes, me? Go ahead. Yes. Okay. I think this is a key question to try and understand what's going on now and um, where, where we're heading, possibly, what are the lessons to be drawn from the Arab Spring and the Agency of Women before the Arab Spring, during, and since then. I think change is difficult and slow to occur. We know that, even though I'm a sociologist, I like to learn from my colleagues in history, and we know it takes a long time. In looking at change in women's rights as a main focus of my research for a while now, and looking at different countries, and closely in particular at Tunisia and Morocco, what I see is that change can come from above when the power holders, whoever they happen to be, they can be the, a nationalist uh, party or leaders, they can be the king in Morocco, they can be um, others, the Shah in Iran, etc., have a vested interest in expanding the rights of marginalized groups. And we have seen that happen throughout history in other parts of the world as well with other marginalized groups. So somebody who has power finds it in their best interest to consolidate their power to use the expansion of a marginalized group. That is what happened with women's rights, with state feminism. However, that is only one process. The other process is cultural change. And with cultural change, you need the pressures from below. One question people always ask is how come we didn't have women's activism of the same form in the earlier period in the Middle East and North Africa? We did not because we did not have a... Um, sufficient number of women who were educated and engaged in the labor force and engaged in, in the public sphere. You are very unlikely to you see a certain kind of agency if you go to uh, communities that are rural where women have not received an education. You see a different form of agency when women get educated. So the big thing that changed in MENA is the expansion 
of women's education, which has made a huge difference. Are you there? Yes, yes, yes. Okay, and oh, okay, because the call was coming, and we didn't know if it was you or not. So, with women's expansion of education, women participation in the public sphere, we see women's activism. We see women forming associations, movements, having a voice in research centers, in the media, in newspapers, in writing books, in doing all kinds of things, in putting pressure on Parliament and now in getting elected in Parliament. But the change from below is one that requires effort, struggle, time. And when, when activists start, they never know that they don't have a guarantee of success, right? We never know whether we're going to succeed or not when we engage in activism. So, of course, in Saudi Arabia, in Morocco, with the reforms of the law in 2004, you have pressure from below. You have women's activism. You have women's movements, associations, and they made a huge difference. But look how long it took in Morocco. The reforms were in 2004. Women started in the late 80s because that's when the expansion of education produced large numbers of women who were educated and committed to women's rights. So the activism pressure from below can be a very long process. It can take a decade rather than three months. And we start, and it's like having faith that something will happen, but success is not guaranteed. Yeah, and it sometimes it takes all. a generation as well. No, absolutely. I think the, the, the point about culture change is so important uh, because that is how you ensure that many of these laws that are being reformed are also being implemented correctly. So the pressure has to continue um, uh, from from below. Yeah. Thank you, Munira. Um, Margot, um, I'd, like to, I'd like you to also... Um, comment on this from, from your own perspective, uh, particularly the historical perspective. Well, I thought you were asking about uh, what's going on now in the post-revolutionary moment. Was that what you were asking? Um, no, it was sort of more about um, the, the uh, politics from below uh, sometimes, you know, clashing with the politics from above. And how, okay, okay, yeah. okay, yes. Well, I mean, that has to be located. I mean, the politics from below or the actions from below uh, were on, uh, you know, display uh, di- uh, dramatically, dynamically, vividly uh, during <clears throat> the time, the years of the uprisings, the revolution. I'm thinking Egypt now because that's what... I thought you were asking me about, uh, which I know I have more experience with, and I am in and out of Egypt all the time, Uh, not now with COVID, of course, because I got stuck somewhere else. But um, uh, what's going on? You know, these these, uh, forms of activism and, and and, and, and action from below and so on are also related to uh, the overall um, uh, political moment. Um, So 
what is possible. Uh, uh, and uh, I think that we just, uh, what what is most remarkable to me really is the sort of dailiness, everyday changes that especially the younger generation of women and men together are affecting and having a different kind of social life, uh, social existence. And uh, they are making, um, they are moving their lives forward, not so much in demands or even in public displays, but in sometimes much more discreetly because they know that's how they're going to um, be able to uh, manage. So I think they're developing uh, by performing uh, in in their daily um, existence. Uh, one area where there is still more expression, individual expression, is in uh, arts. And uh, artists are, are still um, managing to produce. And they, uh, through reading, uh, I mean, through understanding, observing, and reading the art production, we can under, we can grasp a lot of what they are living through, um, aspiring uh, for. And um, uh, that's... Uh, and and people... Uh, and there, of course, is uh, uh, writing. Um, uh, people are writing. As far as journalism... Well, let, yes, okay. You're... No, no, I think I'll ahead, stop there. Okay. No, no, no. I just what I'm trying to say is that uh, that... It's a moment for regrouping, for uh, expressing change and desire and taking it in your hand, but not for making overt, con- uh, you know, uh, collective, visible, uh, public uh, demands. Got it. Thank, thank you, uh, Margot. Um, so one more question, and I just want to remind her, those who are um, on the call to press star one uh, to get in the queue to, to ask their question. So the, the, the theme um, about feminism obviously runs very loud um, and clear in, uh, throughout the book. I think in, in the introduction, uh, Rita and Munira, you talk about um, basically resisting feminist narratives, uh, that Arab women are sort of um, sometimes portrayed in the narratives of of um, Western or third world feminism, and they're not accurately portrayed. So do you think that with this um, compilation of essays from diverse voices across the Arab world, that we're starting to see a distinct um, sort of form of Arab feminism that is not what, you know, uh, Western feminism uh, portrays uh, Arab women and um, or third world feminism, you know, uh, portrays its own as well, um, and 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 do we is do we also see is, is there room or is there space for um, for a, a discussion on masculinity within this emerging you know and and um, sort of strengthening Arab feminist um, movement because that's also sort of the other side of the coin as to addressing many of these challenges. Uh, that, that women face. Rita, would you like to start? Absolutely. This is a subject that is dear to my heart. You know, the entire concept of Arab feminism was not even acceptable or, or uh, uh, dealt uh, with in, in uh, the United States or in the Western uh, gender uh, circles in the 80s. And in the 90s, we started to talk a little bit and start introducing this 
the topic, and at the, it was still kind of we uh, we we were compartmentalized. We were put in a place where, yes, yes, but you go over there with the lesser feminism, and uh, this is where the label of the third world feminism, and um, for for many years, uh, every time we would try to publish in uh, regular gen- gender uh, journals, we're always reminded how Arab women can't be that uh, 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 strong, can't have that full of an agency. Their feminism is not that conscious. Um, so it's more tactical. And uh, we struggled even with the title of the book. Uh, Munira and I stressed that we don't want to call it Arab Women Rising. We want to call it Women Rising because... This is a volume that teaches feminists about the experience from of Arab feminists and how it relates and it can teach and inform the world, you know, and Western feminism. So talking about sexuality, talking about dealing with masculinity, there's a there's a piece there on uh, by Abad on on how men are included in the fight against sexual violence. And mm-hmm. uh, the, we believe that this is a book that should be taught not just in Middle Eastern classes. This is a book that's not on Middle Eastern shelves. This is a book about feminism and about women's agency as is expressed. And it is about time to be for, for our part of the world to be included in the discourse on feminism. We're often not there. So this is our part of, of putting, the, inserting our people in, in this conversation. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Rita. Uh, Munira? Munira, we can't hear you. Thank you to unmute. Can you hear me now? Yes, perfect. Okay. I... Um, I I want to say that I agree with everything that Rita said. And so I want to go from there and build on it. I think it depends on what we mean by Arab feminism. If we mean, is there feminism in the Arab world? Then Rita has totally answered the question. Yes, there is. And a lot of scholars journals, people in the media, and in the society at large in this country assumed there was none and assumed that Arab women are the epitome of passivity, subordination, behind the veil, etc. So that's one way in which I think the book contributes to telling everyone, hey, people, yes, there is. Arab feminism. There is feminism in the Arab world. The second possible meaning that has been discussed and I think is a very interesting question is the following. Is Arab feminism different from other forms of feminism or what does it have in common with feminisms in other parts of the world? And that latter question, I think, is also very important. I think the book clearly answers the first. 
the second question, is it the same, is it different, is touched upon in the book, and it's our next job. It's not easy to answer. It's addressed tangentially in the book. And the question now is, what do feminist movements, associations in the Arab world have in common with feminism in other parts of the world or in the West, and how do they differ? And my quick answer, my 10-second <laughs> my answer to this, is that they have points in common, and then they also have different struggles. But they have points in common because there are some belief systems that are common to feminism throughout Made, I don't know if I want to say throughout the world, but certainly across many countries. And then there are also different struggles because every feminist movement is going to face a different situation. That's it. Thank you. Thank you, Munira. Um, Margot? Uh, the, uh, of course, the book, the uh, large number of pieces, the 40 pieces in the book, can be read in ways that will um, help people who have little knowledge of um, Arab women's uh, histories and lives and so on, discern elements of feminist um, consciousness, uh, feminist yearnings, some uh, actions. Um, uh, I mean, I've spent my whole career and my whole life both writing about the history of um, feminism uh, in the Middle East with a particular focus on, on Egypt and then later on Islamic feminism. And uh, uh, this, uh, there is a huge amount of, of course, of uh, lack of awareness um, that one meets along the way when one is uh, writing and speaking about um, feminism. Um, uh, I uh, I think that all I could say is that this book will give people insights who had sort of stereotypical ideas of what um, women in the Middle East, uh, Arab women, Muslim women, Christian Arabs, and so on were about. Um, uh, but it's not explicitly, of course, a uh, a book about. Feminisms. It's a book about revolutionary activity that includes feminism, and in a sense, feminism, of course, is revolutionary. Thank you. Thank you, Margot. Um, I, we are um, at 3 p.m., so we're running out of time. I just um, wanted uh, each one of you, um, in just sort of one minute, to share one, one last thought, and that last thought would be sort of your... I know it's hard to pick... Uh, your favorite essay, and I won't ask you to do that. But um, but sort of your the, the your your favorite takeaway uh, or most compelling takeaway from from um, from this book um, that I encourage all the listeners um, to read um, before before we conclude. Um, so I'll I'll start with um, with you, Rita, once again. You can't ask such a question. Uh, <laughs> favorite. Essays, uh, you know, but my favorite, honestly, is the chapter on rural women in, in rural Egypt. Um, this, as long as we have been paying attention to women's activism in the region, 
we always focus on the center and, and focus on the capital and focus on the able and the educated. But um, little attention has been paid to uh, liter- illiterate women's agency and how they, too, have expressed it. And I'm very uh, happy that, to have that chapter. There are many chapters there, and, and uh, um, I, I really like all of them, but that, that's my favorite. Thank you. Thank you, Rita. Um, Munira, what is the, sort of the most compelling piece? For me, it, it's the yes. one from which I read your quote, My Revolution, because I found it poignant and so subjective, and it's the experience of this woman who'd never been to a protest and what she is discovering and how she's discovering her own empowerment combined with the solidarity with other people. And that, uh, I think, is, I, I just almost cried when I read that piece. So I find it extremely powerful. And my takeaway issue, because, you know, I think of the book now as where does it lead us in terms of trying to figure things out? And my next issue is that I want to understand better and more closely the feminist associations movement in the region and of course I'm taking the country of Tunisia because that's where I go. So it's yeah. you know, what yeah. do they do, how they organize, where they're coming from, what do they mean feminism? What lessons are they going to offer to the world? That's what it, I find a very compelling question. Thank you. Thank you so much Munira. And um Margo. Uh, so, uh, what I take away uh, from it, or what what uh, I hold with it uh, from it, uh, is the energy, diversity, uh, fearlessness, determination, and relentlessness uh, uh, that is expressed in um, all these various manifestations of uh, uprising, and I think that that those elements are continuing uh, to be uh, lodged deeply within uh, many uh, people, even if they are slightly suppressed uh, at some level at the moment. But uh, uh, this is what I take away from it. And in such a vast uh, array of countries, you see uh, these, uh, these dimensions expressed. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Margot. Um, well, uh, thank you again, uh, Rita, Munira, and Margot, uh, for a fascinating discussion. Um, thank you for uh, the work that you've done throughout you, throughout the years, uh, particularly with this book. I find it to be very inspiring, and I think um, reading so many of these diverse um, essays, um, I just feel more inspired to continue the work that I'm doing um, uh, on um, women's rights and empowerment and agency in the region. So thank you once again uh, to all of our listeners. Thank you for listening in. And I, I strongly recommend that you buy the book and read the book um, and um, and learn from it. There is There are many teaching moments that are, um, I think, uh, very special and uh, very illuminating. Um, And I hope to continue the conversation 
Um, and hopefully we'll see version 2.0 of Women Rising because the revolution continues. So thank you once again to all of you. Um, and this concludes our Grand Truth Briefing for this afternoon. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for your participation in today's conference. You may disconnect at this time.